my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Pam Greer. That's right, folks. I'm Foxy Cleopatra, and I'm a whole lot of woman. Will, we talked about you not doing this when the show started. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't Pam Greer. That was a character modeled after Pam Greer in the film Austin Powers in Goldmember. So Pam Greer is an actor. Do you think she is well known by the general populace? Uh, that's a tough question because within the general populace, there are many general populaces. Mm. I'm sure moviegoers from in the 70s, especially black moviegoers in the oh, 70s. Oh, definitely know her. She's a household name. And in fact, you know what? I would say, yeah, she's been around enough. I think if I said Pam Greer, people can conjure an image in their mind. Many people, maybe even most people, they conjure the image of like... The strong, black, usually action star. Badass chick mm-hmm. with a gun, with an afro in 70s clothes. Or, or... Um, on the cover of Jackie Brown holding the Yes, gun. because thanks to Quentin Tarantino, she got a second life. Unfortunately, in a movie that didn't pop as much as Tarantino was hoping at the time, it did lead to some more career work, but we'll get to that later because we should start more at the beginning in her defining roles with people like filmmaker Jack Hill. The key Pam Greer films are Coffee from 1973, Foxy Brown from 1974. Uh, there are others, but I would say those are the two. Those are the two like defining ones. And... She's notable because this was at the peak of the black exploitation era and black exploitation films, black exploitation, and there are many debates that have been had over that term, whether that's a condescending term. It's become like a catch-all term that everyone uses. Uh, the period when black actors could appear in leading roles, essentially. <laughs> you know a black exploitation film when you see one. It's like Shaft, Superfly. You know the soundtrack. You know its general outlook, which is oftentimes through the lens of white filmmakers because they were the ones behind the camera. And it is exploitative. But at the time, it gave them a chance to do stuff that they had never been able to do before then. And even after then, they didn't get a lo- chance to do for a long time. And also films that especially the early ones, introduced the idea of like the black anti-hero, mm-hmm. you know, like Sweet Sweet Back. P- uh, characters who were not Sidney Poitier, characters who were not Mantan Moreland either. Characters who were, you know, complicated, uh, drug dealers, pushers, uh, cops, pimps, mm-hmm. you know, whole whole range of characters. But anyway, the black exploitation boom really only lasted 1970 to 1975. Yeah, not long. I mean, most of those kind of, you know, big popular genre booms like spaghetti westerns, they have that much of a shelf life but they just pumped out so many during that time it's because yeah the first two years 1970 is cotton comes to harlem 71 is sweet sweet back and shaft Mm. 72 is superfly and then in 73 there are like 500 movies in 74 there are 500 movies and then by 1975 the market's been saturated too many mediocre movies have been made and you're starting to see black actors cast in supporting roles Mm -hmm. but like non-mantan moreland supporting roles in mainstream movies like pam greer coffee came out in 1973 which was like her big lead role breakout hit but that same year she also had black mama white mama come out which was a filipino film directed by genre god eddie romero she was born in 1949 in north carolina she grew up an army brat Uh, her father was a mechanic in the u.s air force so she moved around frequently when she was only six years old i'm sorry to say she suffered uh, a a very traumatic sexual assault from a number of older neighborhood boys and i bring this up only because whenever you read articles about her now every interview she's given like in the last 10 years since the publication of her memoir this always comes up and something that's been talked about a lot and it's probably relevant i don't know how to 
how to discuss well, it. Well, she's talked about as well that that kind of uh, sexual assault and abuse continued throughout her career. And you can tell in her interviews that it's important for her to bring it up because it needs to be something that isn't like, you know, kept in the darkness. And it colors, I think, our understanding of the, those films she made in her prime because, you know, she was, in addition to being like a strong, badass heroine in those movies, she, she's also very sexualized mm. in those films. And those are films like by male filmmakers for largely male audience especially the women in prison films which are like look at them kind of be abused and demeaned now they'll rise up at the end but for the bulk of the picture that's what the enjoyment factor is from. yeah so you know knowing that she underwent that in her personal life makes the films i probably interesting things to study as like to what extent is she reclaiming her sexuality? Uh, to, to what extent does she own her sexuality on screen? And to what extent is it being co-opted by the filmmakers? Uh, I don't have a definitive answer to that, by the way. No, these two guys so, definitely are not going to parse that. I'm merely going to raise issues and then drop them. Uh, but anyway, she arrived in Hollywood in 1967, and it was there that she worked at American International Pictures as a switchboard operator. Now, Justin, tell the people what American International Pictures was. American International Pictures was one of the big production and distribution houses. It often gets confused with Roger Corman, but that's just because Roger Corman was making many films for them that they would then distribute like the Edgar Allan Poe film. That's right. Roger Corman was kind of like the signature filmmaker of American mm. International Pictures. And American International Pictures was one of those production companies that emerged after the collapse of the studio system or, the, uh, you know, the Paramount Decree, where studios used to be able to own their own theater chains and just block book. Once the Supreme Court ruled that down, American International Pictures exploited all of these new independent screening venues. And also the drive-in kind of phenomenon. Exactly. So, you know, she worked at American International Pictures, uh, which was making all these great exploitation films at the time. And somebody, it was either Roger Corman or the director Jack Hill, or maybe both of them, noticed her thought she'd be great in pictures. I know that her first role is technically in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls in 1969. I mean, has she been spotted in that movie? Like, she's supposed to be in a crowd somewhere. She apparently plays fourth woman. Okay, yeah. <laughs> according to IMDb. I myself have not spotted her and it should be pointed out as well is that she did do acting before then like on stage and stuff like that this is not something she was thrust into it's something that she did have an interest in and you know she was probably in los angeles to do that but she was paying the bills by being a switchboard operator but the scorsese to her de niro was jack hill who directed her most popular films also gave her her first significant role in the big dollhouse in 1971 which was one of that string of women in prison films not for me <laughs> Uh, yeah, there are some of them that I like. The Jess Franco directed Ilsa movie, right? Jess Franco's Bardwire Dolls. <laughs> yes, that's uh, I, right. I, th I think has slow its, motion pillow fight has its pleasures. Uh, but yeah, like all those all those movies. Yeah, a lot of cat fights in prison, mm. a lot of uh, torture and stuff like that. A lot of a lot of tits. Yes, a lot. Um, I hope you guys like shower scenes. Uh, the film that propelled her to stardom though was 1973's Coffee, which uh, no less than Quentin Tarantino calls one of the ten greatest films of all time. I mean, didn't he also say that Pam Greer was cinema's first? woman action star he's obviously not right but no. I, but i'm gonna i'm gonna say that he's right because first of all <laughs> wait 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 what I, i'm gonna i'm gonna pretend and let him be right because pam greer is a significant figure because first of all she's certainly i think the first black female action star absolutely i'll agree with in, you that in, in hollywood yes um <laughs> which narrows it down <laughs> that narrows it very down but but it's very significant because you know in the context of the black exploitation genre she in the films before coffee 
women were largely treated as ornamentation mm-hmm. or, you know, they were girlfriends, they were Victims. prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Th- those were a lot of the roles. And she, you know, was a very strong, I, you know, I think Cleopatra Jones came out the same year, but she was the one who really became symbolic of that. Well, if you think of coffee and what the plot is, it's not like her being abused and taking revenge on people. She's actually acting because someone she knows had something bad happen to them. And that's why she's taking, you know, revenge on the people around her. She is not actually made into a victim at the beginning of the film to then rise up. She gains her own kind of self-actualization before the film even starts based on just who she is and her personality. She plays the title role, Coffee. Uh, she'll cream you, as the poster said. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, she's a nurse by day and a vigilante by night. She seeks to bring down a syndicate of drug dealers who she blames for the death of her younger sister who got hooked on heroin. And Coffee is a master of disguise, be- although her disguises often involve her wearing less clothing than, yes. than she had on. But you know what? You throw on a Jamaican accent too. That's true. Uh, she poses as a prostitute and uh, then as another prostitute and and so on. There's a great section of the film where she goes undercover to pursue a pimp by the name of King George and she gets into this brawl with all the other prostitutes in his employ and you know she's got she hides razor blades in her afro haircut so that when they grab her hair you know people just keep spilling out of their tops in this cat fight. It was the 70s I mean, man the clothes wasn't built I guess to last back then that's why they're all, all the women are popping out I mean it'd be great if the men's dicks were flopping around too when they I, fought but... who, who would love that but oh my god yeah one scene after another in this movie just casually too just just people with you know the biggest bosoms and the the mm. tightest and flimsiest dresses folks i'm just reporting the news i'm just saying what's in the film how would you describe pam greer's like personality in a film like this it's interesting because she is very strong the scenes that tend to be remembered and that you always see like on the dvd cover or in pictures that get circulated in pop culture her like holding the gun and looking really cool but there's a lot of vulnerability in her screen persona too isn't there i think that's very important about why people you know they react so strongly to her because you could have and i mean they did even aip did it made tons of exploitation films of it would just be like you know tough women action stars don't get as remembered as pam greer and something like coffee and it kind of like you know culminates in the picture at the end when the man she's been dating is revealed to be an evil politician and she has a moment where she kind of like breaks down as she's talking to him and it genuinely works as a performance moment in this otherwise very silly and violent action well this movie coffee is basically what you want to see when you see an exploitation movie Mm. from american international pictures because it's got a lot of very gruesome violence it's got a lot of nudity and it has no small amount of social commentary Mm. because the drug operation is depicted in the film as this all-pervading systemic problem all the city's cops are in the pocket of this drug ring so too is coffee's boyfriend who is a city council member who's running for congress and at the end of the film when uh, she gets her ultimate revenge spoiler i guess Mm -hmm. sorry folks when she gets her ultimate revenge like there's a hollowness at the end of the film because well he even says he's like if you kill me someone will just replace me right after who'll probably be worse than me which is true in real life yes exactly and so she just like walks sadly on the beach Mm -hmm. and yeah it's a testament to her acting at the end how she's able to get that across like the like she is both strong and and very weak in that scene or just open and vulnerable like 
there's a like she wants to believe this man that you know earlier in the film she clearly loved that maybe there is something there maybe there's a bigger plan but oh no he has another woman in the house so it's over yeah she really seems like capable of anything in the mm. film like any sort of emotion and she's she's sort of unpredictable the, the tone gets set early on like after that incredible raid where she blows up the guy mm-hmm. like then she goes to her day job uh, at the hospital and she's like so so shaken and mm-hmm. she's like obviously traumatized for what she's just done then she gets like taken off duty basically well she clarifies like the theme of the film and she even sells it even though it's such a hacky line where she's like have you ever like done something and it feels like you're dreaming but you're still going through it and you can see that through her performance and it adds another layer to it when you consider like this is not something she wants to do she feels no satisfaction in doing it but she feels the need to do it that like there's a hole in her life and she's trying to fill it by taking out these evil guys played by you know uh one of her co-stars who appears again and again in each film that she makes Sid Hay who's also in Foxy Brown which I think like basically takes the coffee template I think Foxy Brown is like not quite as good as coffee um although it's probably more iconic there's an unpolished quality to coffee that I like a lot there's a there's an ugliness there's a bleakness a, a sense of nihilism to I'm just throwing around words now but you know <laughs> but but but, uh, but listen actually, I gotta get to a thousand for this review that i'm writing <laughs> <laughs> coffee like uh within the context of an exploitation film like like feels very raw and mm. real and true and i think foxy brown a little slicker because they got the template down pat yeah it's just uh it's a little sillier too i mean that will continue in the films that she made like within that wave like sheba baby and friday foster where they're trying to kind of recreate that coffee magic and maybe they'll have more pyrotechnics but it doesn't have that rawness that you had in that jack hill original so she basically had like two years of being mm. a huge star maybe three years and you you know, during that period, much was happening. She dated Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. She dated Richard Pryor. I bring this up because these facts come up every time you read about mm-hmm. her. Like, they are they are part of her mystique now. But like we talked about the fact that exploitation didn't last that long, once it was over, they're like, we can't have a black woman actor star in any movies anymore. Go appear in Canadian films like The Vindicator. That's all you can do now. Like, all of those exploitation people like very few of them i mean they they all became working actors i guess like well, fred williamson went off on his own and he started directing producing films that he could star right fred williamson made these like independent mm-hmm. direct-to-video things but the rest of them like you know people like jim brown and uh richard roundtree would just like pop up like third build in character roles in b movies basically. and that's essentially what pam greer did as well i mean she appeared on a lot of television she was a regular on miami vice for a while she had a good uh new york stage role she was in sam shepherd's fool for love mm-hmm. for like nine months yeah that's a good role so it's and like- then uh, uh above the law the first steven seagal <laughs> film where yeah. she plays his partner which uh Uh, Not a bad role, you know, Warner Brothers. She can star in movies. Why aren't you giving her a starring role? Like, she's great in Class of 1999 or Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, but it's like, she can do so much more than that. Well, jumping ahead, I read a recent interview with her. I think it was in The New Yorker where she was talking about being in the recent Diane Keaton film, Palms, Mm -hmm. P-O-M-S. That's the one where it's like an old cheerleading team gets back together. And like, that was a movie that some people were making fun of it when it came out. In the article, Pam Greer says something like, look, I've wanted to work with Diane Keaton forever. And there have been so many movies where people have point blank told me, oh, we can't have a black person in this movie or or this person doesn't want to co-star with a black person. It's like Diane Keaton put her money where her mouth is. Mm-hmm. Like, 
<laughs> Especially that she's older now, which is like double poison yeah, for yeah. any studio. So I'm glad if you look at her MDB, she actually has more higher class or like thanks to the streaming world, she's allowed to act and she's in like a TV show as well where she plays a sheriff. So that's great. But let's move back a little bit further because Jackie Brown was another like big title role that she was able to star in. The big follow-up to Pulp Fiction. And probably, I mean, even even more than Coffee at this point, the movie on which her legacy rests. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like people are like, you know, the real big Pam Greer films are Coffee and definitely Original Gangsters, which came out a year before Jackie Brown. And which but, also had Robert Forster. Yeah, also had Robert Forster, uh, Fred Williamson, Jim Brown, directed by Larry Cohen. I like Original Gangsters. I like Original Gangsters too. Jackie Brown. I mean, we're not going to describe the plot of this one. Everybody, everybody's seen this. You've seen this. I had a good time watching it again. Me too. I hadn't watched it in age. Yeah, same. And I got to tell you, for the first 40 minutes of watching it, I was not into you it. You know why? It's like too much Robert De Niro and Samuel Jackson. Yeah. It's like, when is Pam Greer and Robert Forster going to come in? We know those are the dynamos. Well, part of it too is like, I've seen so much Quentin Tarantino at yes. this point. That like there was a time when I was a teenager when he was like so fresh and exciting. Mm-hmm. And now it's like I've seen every trick in his toolbox. When the movie starts, it's like a rip off of The Graduate. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> then after about 40 minutes, like once. Well, it's a love story. Once Pam Greer and Robert Forster yeah. start sharing the sharing scenes. And once that plot, you know, the, the multiple perspective like heist plot kicks in. God, I mean, I give it five stars on Letterboxd. Honestly, it's like, I think it's Tarantino's best movie. Uh, you know what? I think I agree with you. I think that overall it is terrible. It's just a, that first 40 minutes when I got to hang out with Samuel Jackson and Robert. The thing about that, though, is like, like we've seen it before. Yes. Like, if we were seeing it for the first time, I think that would be more exciting. And you know where it's going, too. You've seen Samuel L. Jackson do Tarantino's lines so mm. often that you forget how novel it used to be. It almost feels like Quentin Tarantino lays those scenes out early on because he's like, people who want Pulp Fiction, this is what they want. And then that allows me to sneak in the heart of the movie, which is Robert Forster and Pam Greer afterwards. It's like, I've been giving you, I gave you your dessert. Now let's have like, you know, the meal. Okay. So now let's talk uh, enough about Tarantino. Mm -hmm. People have talked about him enough, including us. Let's talk about Robert Forster and Pam Greer because the two of them are so fucking good together. And the extra textual baggage that they bring to this movie where, you know, as everyone knows, this is the, this is the mature Tarantino movie. Mm -hmm. This is the one about middle-aged people reckoning with their disappointments. And it, works so much better the fact that you've got these two people who used to very briefly be kind of like grindhouse stars and then less so for Mm. 20 years i mean like can you imagine if robert de niro had been cast in the robert forster role which is what de niro wanted when he read the script he's like i want to play this role and tarantino was like nah i wrote it for robert forster (laughs) i mean i don't blame him that he wanted it but like it helps you have to have somebody in that role like when robert forster talks to pam greer and he's like you know i got hair plugs it's fine i look at myself in the mirror and i go that's me and it's like you can you can just feel that's like robert forster himself saying those lines or even Pam greer going like i work in the shittiest airline that i can get they're almost talking about their acting careers like i just take whatever roles that come to me even robert forster saying like i just don't want to do this anymore it's almost him being like i don't want to be an actor like i just want to do something else forster looks like a guy who used to be handsome yes i mean he's looked like that for ages even in alligator there's tons of jokes about him balding yeah and you know pam greer i'm sorry i i i don't necessarily want to turn this into a podcast by talking about how people look but like she's she's beautiful in the film i mean they talk about it at lengths in the picture of like oh you look exactly like you did you know compared and robert forster does look haggard but it's that 
that like past his prime kind of thing, which makes it work so much. Well, she looks like she did in the seventies, but with a but but she mature. Looks, but she looks older. Yeah, like she like she has she has gravitas mm-hmm. to her. You know, like uh, the scene at the end, Robert Forster is like where she goes, "Do I scare you?" And he goes. A little bit <laughs> like you buy it because that's the presence that she has in the movie. Like she's going up against like Michael Keaton, like megastar Keaton that everybody knows. A guy who does all the, all the stuff, yeah. all the stuff. And she like pff, just squashes him. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I forget Michael Keaton is in this movie because of like Pam Greer and Robert Forster. Yeah. I'm like, let me get to those scenes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's weird to have a guy who's like as famous as Michael Keaton in a part like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but anyway, like it's great to see Pam Greer, like with so many different, like, really good actors mm. like uh, Samuel L. Jackson too, to see her interacting, with, to all, Mano, yeah. interacting with all these people. I guess she doesn't do much with De Niro. But, and I like too that it takes a, a while to figure out like to what extent she's a sympathetic character. And I think she plays that really well. Like, you know, much like in Coffee, uh, there's a whole gamut of emotions that she has. Like she, she is both strong and, and uh, vulnerable. vulnerable. Like there's that, uh, there are so many good scenes in the film, but there's that great scene at the end where she's like sitting in Robert Forrester's desk basically. And she's like rehearsing what she's going to do when Samuel oh, Jackson pulling comes the in, gun? pulling the gun out, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, like doing the thing where she like looks really smooth and then pulls the gun out mm-hmm. and then puts it back and then looks really smooth again, pulls the gun out like oh so good so well played and like you know good for tarantino for making the space in the movie people call him self-indulgent and he is but good for him for putting the space in the movie for all of these like character beats these like acting moments well when you give uh time to actors like robert forster and pam greer as we already mentioned they bring the baggage but they also bring all the experience that they've had throughout their career and that when you give them the space to act like this it feels different than if like i don't know uma thurman was in a role like that or somebody that was a more like it person and i mean that kind of went away in tarantino's career like robert forster and pam greer being in these big main roles you almost feel that you know after jackie brown came out and there was kind of like a backlash to tarantino after that and he went into hiding until kill bill for a while yeah i mean i guess um think of how uh the brad pitt role in once upon a time in hollywood would have been if i mean brad pitt's obviously really good but if they had gotten like like someone someone who was like robert forster was in it or you know somebody somebody of that of that caliber like an old stuntman playing that role it would have been great but uh, tarantino doesn't make those movies anymore the scenes between forster and greer they have such chemistry together too Mm -hmm. and there's like there's such an awkward like like back and forth back and forth to them and like they're they're so sort of guarded but they let little bits of tenderness in i'm not even making any sense it's just beautiful i mean there's like shots in the movie where it's like just on their faces i remember there's one shot where it like zooms in the robert forster's eyes then it pans down and he just smiles it's like oh you just get it or the way that like pam greer gets all of these like close-ups that just her face and the acting that she does on it when she still needs to look cool but there's more going on it just works oh my god the last shot of the film where, oh, she's, where she sings uh, where she's driving away the, the what she does with her face is extraordinary the kind of like both triumphant and melancholy quality that she has there and mm. that Tarantino evokes sort of on the soundtrack. Mm. Um, ah, love it. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, that did not lead to Pam Greer getting any more starring roles after that. Well, I mean, much like Robert Forster, what it led to was her being a busy or at least a working actress, like character actress. So, I mean, what's incredible is she didn't get an Oscar nomination from Robert it. Robert Forster got a nomination, but not her. That is 
wild to me. And then when you look at what was nominated that year, not that it means anything, but it's like like Helena, Helena Bonham Carter was nominated for Wings of a Dove. <laughs> Who the fuck's watching that anymore? <laughs> when you look at Jackie Brown, it's all about Pam Greer. Like, come on, I mean, that's man. a fucking star performance. Yeah. And, you know, I read an interview with her where she said, like, you know, my publicist said to me, look, we're not able to get any magazine covers for you because you're a black woman of a certain age. Yeah. There are a lot of people who read these magazines who just don't identify with you. I mean, that would be a lot different if Jackie Brown were made now. I think. Well, absolutely. But uh, that's awful. She did continue working. She was in Bones with Snoop Dogg. She was in Holy Smoke, the Jane Campion film where she played uh, she played Harvey Keitel's long suffering wife, I think, mm. in a couple of scenes. I mean, yeah, she's in like Ghost of Mars. She was in the L word. She had a, yeah, a good she had role a in that. pretty big role in the hour. So yeah, so she kept working. And she continues working, and uh, nobody can take the, uh, that iconic status away from her. No. And, and the, you know, the thing about Jackie Brown is, like, yes, it, it should have been a window to, or a doorway to more great roles, but it was the role of a lifetime. Well, I think that you, what you rarely see in people's career is Pam Greer has coffee, which kind of cements her as an iconic figure and as an actor. And then you have Jackie Brown, which is like, oh yeah, she was always this. She could turn it on again if given the opportunity. And so when you look at those two movies, not only do you have these two amazing things, but it's also like, oh, why didn't she, was she able to do more? I'm sure she could do it again right now. No, at no 72, problem. Yeah. So. Get her in a Safety Brothers movie. I'm sure she could deliver on that. Well, Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Matt Holler. Uh, sorry if I read your name incorrectly. It goes, Hello, Justin and Will. I've been an avid listener for a few months now. Your podcast has really opened my eyes to a lot of great cinema that I would have not otherwise sought out nor was fully on its wavelengths, mainly a lot of genre cinema. With some of the toxicity, dogma, and ridiculous ways of viewing film out there on the internet, I see you two as a force for good, using your platform not to demean artists because they may have made a bad film, but more for introducing listeners to artists and films that they may not be aware of from all walks of life. Ah, I really appreciate that. I actually know matt because he's in the discord a lot which you can join if you're a patreon subscriber and he's talked about that he never had any interest in horror films and he or action cinema and he's been watching a few because he's been listening to our podcast and i say good work going out there and like trying or watching stuff you otherwise wouldn't appreciate to see if there's something there for you the letter continues now that it's been almost six years since your episode on clean Eastwood. six years we've My been God. doing this for six years also so much has happened in those six years because i feel like on that episode about clint eastwood i was a little lukewarm on the oh, subject and I now you went uh, and now I'm full, full film Twitter on Clint. I'm Clint Pilled, yes. Yeah. Well, no, you take those words out of your mouth. <laughs> you, know, you know what? You know what I said on that episode. I still. So, You're remember. gonna listen back six years from now because we're still doing this podcast as we're cursed to do it for all time. You're gonna be like, oh, Clint Pilled. <laughs> yeah. Remember when we used to say that? <laughs> I just remember on that episode saying something like, you know, there's a limit to how much of his stuff I really love, but mm. but I I do like the whole career as a whole. And now I look back, it's like, fuck, there's a lot in that body of work I love. And because the letter continues, and the fact that we live in a post-1517 to Paris world. I mean, that was it. <laughs> that was it for me. I mean, you still haven't seen Jersey Boys, so you don't have the full picture yet. That's true. I was I've seen the first half of Jersey Boys. <laughs> I was curious about uh, your updated thoughts on two discussion points in the episode. First, when it comes to Eastwood as an auteur, Will was more on the side of Eastwood as a journeyman, where Justin said he was more of an auteur. Well, somebody has a uh, correct opinion on that episode. Have both of your thoughts stayed the same, or have both of your explorations of his work swayed you in different ways? Second, we'll discuss issues he had with morally ambiguous films for the masses. Ooh. 
Uh, this is old timey Will. Okay, no, I I actually remember this mm. point because we were talking about High Plains Drifter, mm. which you remember has that rape scene at the yes. beginning, and I believe I believe I mentioned on that episode like there's something about it that rubs me the wrong way, but then like am I do I only feel that way because this is a mass audience movie? Would mm. I feel differently if it were an art film? Yeah. Like I feel like on that episode, it's amazing I still remember this. <laughs> I don't remember it at all. I, I I feel like I was interrogating some of my own impulses and also just the impulses of like the critical community at large Mm -hmm. and so just to address that second point further i am more and more feeling that high plains drifter is a great film and you don't uh, there's nothing to worry about (laughs) i was wondering how you both feel about the topic of moral ambiguity in popular cinema some example of popular film where its moral ambiguity has been a positive or a negative i would say on the topic of high plains drifter that clint is clearly trying to i don't remember if we mentioned this in the episode that it is so caustic in its presentation that like because he's supposed to look like his a few dollars more character but he is almost like evil in the film in what he does right well you know when we did that clint eastwood episode i think his most recent movie was i think it was american sniper and Mm -hmm. i i was a little sour on him because of that and i mean american sniper i think there's a lot about it that's good but i like i still have some resentment towards that movie just because like it was very popular and you can see it as like oh this guy you know he just he he meant well when well, when if you read into it, you're I like, mean, oh, they boy. definitely softened Chris Kyle yes. to be sure. But there's some like that movie, I think, has a bit of a reactionary take on the Iraq war where mm-hmm. it's like, listen, it was for, forget about what the Iraq war was. Forget about the reasons. For, look at the savagery over there. This land was untamable. You know, you, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. had the best people over there, Chris Kyle. So you can feel good about that. We still have the best troops in the world. OK, Ooh, Clint just wow. has one more movie in him. It's about how, you know, if we just stayed in the Afghanistan just a little bit longer. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I was a little sour on him for that. And also, you have to remember, too, when that episode was recorded, we were coming off a run of movies, and maybe some people have reclaimed these, but like, Hereafter, Invictus, Invictus, folks. It was like the end of Clint Eastwood, The Changeling. Oh, man. So I remember going to see Hereafter and thinking, will this man please retire? Like, (laughs) we've had enough of this. And And if he'd listened to you, you wouldn't have gotten your Paris. You wouldn't have gotten your The Mule. Richard Jewell. I mean, I fuck. He had a whole, like, fifth or sixth win left in him (laughs) and i would say something like high plains drifter i I, it really doesn't have the baggage of something like american sniper to me because he was at the top of his powers so it feels like a conscious decision while american sniper is like a softening where he's like yeah i'm a right-wing conservative guy so this is the movies people expect me to make i mean is he an auteur i would would say yes i was but also again i do want to position that episode in the context of the time it came out invictus yes those are journeyman films okay but look at bridges of madison county (laughs) yeah although maybe they're not journeyman films because like i definitely see like you know something in the politics of of invictus mm-hmm. or just i mean the style of hereafter has oh my god has that... invictus and hereafter they feel like the same movie in my mind i see like matt damon's floating face or yeah. angela jolie's floating face there's some of the style of hereafter which i have not seen since it came out mm-hmm. obviously that is kind of similar to some of the style of the later ones like that that subdued like not at all melodramatic mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say not at all melodramatic. That sounds like phoned in, doesn't care about what he's doing. I mean, one of the good things about American Sniper is the fact that it really doesn't lean hard into like the sappy yeah. stuff. Yeah, that it leaves it at enough of a distance because that's Clint's style. But then you can see he can go sappy like Bridges of Madison County. Or Mystic River, I think, mm-hmm. goes big on the melodrama at times that's not one of my favorites yeah i was gonna say how do you feel about mystic river which was a big hit when it came out i think it's a little 
Too much? Yeah, a little too much. That wasn't a stretch, Is that my daughter in there? You know? (laughs) What about Million Dollar Baby? I should see that one again, because I do remember liking that one, but I was a little turned off by all that stuff with Hilary Swank's family. Mm, I don't remember that. Her, like, cartoonishly evil family (laughs) who were just, like, constantly being mean to her. But I just watched Gran Torino again, and I thought it was pretty fun. Mm. Um, And it's obviously half-assed and, like, Shoot, printing the first take yes. and, and I like that about Clint mm. yeah. Grant Torino seemingly his last film when he made it but nope kept on kicking I hope I hope he lives to a Manuel de Oliveira uh, level age <laughs> <laughs> well uh, stay tuned for the post credit sequence of the episode perhaps Cry Macho will come up more Clint talk <laughs> thank you very much for the letter Matt and so yeah we've decided Clint still an auteur i have another letter here from paul miller we should just redo the first 10 episodes don't you think <laughs> so jerry lewis i thought that one was pretty john good john woo i think i oh with uh, michael bay we i definitely dropped should. i dropped the ball on that one yeah, i think we have another john woo episode in us you know definitely. you know what it was about that episode yeah we hadn't quite figured out the format of the podcast mm. yet we thought is it going to be double features yeah so we were going to contrast john woo and michael bay and i was so resentful about watching bad boys 2 which mm is two and a half hours long sorry it's a bit it's a bit much that movie <laughs> it is a bit much i would agree with you <laughs> and uh, i was so resentful that i feel like i went into that episode just with a chip on my shoulder and it's probably not very good so uh new john Woo episode coming this way but unlike george lucas we're not erasing the original one it will remain up where i will not listen to it but it's there if people want to check it out our next letter is from paul miller and it goes to the important cinema club duo justin and will i've been a fan of your podcast since the start of the pandemic when it seemed like all cinema was halting to a complete stop. At the time, I was unemployed and my filmmaking career was basically dead. Your episode on Canadian cinema, Guy Madden and the NFB helped me overcome what could have been a depressing period of my life, motivating me to spend all my free time making shorts and applying for grants. And then I made a movie called Cry Macho. (laughs) Clint Eastwood! (laughs) Inspire Canadian cinema. As I am writing this, I am in post-productions on my very first feature. Oh golly, and I just thought of two questions, one for Will and one for Justin, that I feel is worthy for asking your fine folks in the form of an email. Well, congratulations on finishing your first feature. To Justin, in what ways do you think it is the biggest challenge hitting independent filmmakers today, and how can we push past a challenge when there are so many of us trying to get our foot in the door i don't know <laughs> as an independent justin have myself. you got your foot in the door yet <laughs> no not <laughs> at all i was thinking about it today even just like as a boutique blu-ray distributor where i remember hearing the guy from synapse going like you know when i did my first laser disc i did night of the living dead no one had ever done it before i got george romero's permission that's how i put it out there i'm like mm, that's a good story how did he get the money to do that like who did he go see what investor or person did he know could just give him money i do not not know anyone like that so but you know what justin you've made two films yeah well i would like to make much let's, more uh, let's get a third one going come uh, on listen i want to be the roger corman slash troy hark of canada that is my dream <laughs> listen justin do you need me to co-write the third one with you yes. i know you work well with with a partner i'll do it i'll do it okay so maybe it, there it were... could be it can be like a woody allen and marshall brickman where it's like you write it and then once a week we meet and we just talk about it <laughs> wait know? is that what happened with woody allen and marshall brickman yeah that's how they wrote annie hall wow i mean and then and then you can go on to have a Woody Allen-like life where you are, <laughs> oh God, you're no. ostracized from society. Wait, what, what did Marshall Brickman do uh, for the rest of his career? I think he wrote Jersey Boys, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's 
movie in your future. I would say the biggest challenge is just keeping at it because there's so much indifference at doing stuff. And because everyone's like, well, anybody can make a movie now, which is not true. If everybody can make a movie, then every asshole would be doing it. And that's not the case. But there's the fact as well is that you may not get an audience on the first go through or your second go through or your third go through and just getting the motivation to keep doing it. I mean, if you want a little bit of inspiration, a little book called Motown on Motown, I recommend reading. Motown on Motown, good book. But yeah, it's like, I, I'm speaking for you. I don't have any experience in this, but I would assume that it's like you make a movie. It's so much work, so much energy, so much time, so much money goes into it that you think, well, everyone's going to be impressed by this. Just the fact that I did it. Yeah, well, that's how I felt when I made my first feature. And then you find out, oh, it's just one of a million movies on Amazon Prime right now. Mm-hmm. But then I still look at something like I made like Teddy Bond. I go like, this is better than these other films that I've seen. <laughs> like, I, You know what? I agree. I think, And, and you know what? Uh, in 15 years, the uh, massacre video of the future <laughs> is going to rediscover it or the uh, intervision of the future is yes. going to release Teddy Bomb on a uh, balls to the wall special edition. And they'll be like, wow, this Canadian cinema royalty, Justin DeClue, he made little pictures back in the day. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. before, before he directed the third remake of Seducing Dr. Lewis <laughs> I would for telefilm. <laughs> direct the third remake of Seducing Dr. Lewis. And guess what? We're back in French because I can direct in French, baby. That's the one thing I haven't figured out how to exploit is uh, the fact that my first language is French to get those sweet Ontario grants. To Will, what lessons can filmmakers learn from critics? What can film critics do to uplift the work of underrepresented artists if that's a responsibility you feel that critics should or should not have? I actually don't know what film directors should learn from critics or can learn from critics. I'm inclined to say nothing, basically. Nothing. I think that... Don't listen to them. Yeah, that's what I think. I think filmmakers should just, like, make the films Mm. and... If a film director starts like thinking about their reviews, that's a problem. I would say that what a filmmaker, what they should learn from are movies themselves. Because then you react to what you like or what you don't like. You will create a vocabulary for yourself that you can then bring into movies. Don't listen to what film critics say. Because they're writing for a multitude of different reasons. And they're writing in the moment. It, you exactly, know? yeah. So, And you don't want to make a movie based and second guessing everything that you're doing. So don't think about that. And he also asked, what can film critics do to uplift the work of underrepresented artists? Well, I think it depends on the critics situation i mean there are critics uh, there are still some critics who write for newspapers or Mm -hmm. magazines or big big venues who i think probably have a hard time haggling with their editors to uh to to get space for that kind of stuff we've talked about this like in toronto none of the newspapers were reviewing the like cavalcade of world cinema that was in all the cineplexes. I always found that strange. Yeah, that at our downtown multiplexes, there would always be a few screens that are just playing Bollywood movies or playing Hong Kong or Chinese or Korean movies. And nobody ever wrote about these films because they there weren't press screenings for them. I will make a broad generalization. Most critics are probably like, I just don't want to bother with it. <laughs> like, I'd rather review the big ones because that's what people will talk about. And that's another issue, which it was happening around TIFF time that some people were like, you know, all the critics want to see the big movies. Why does anybody want to see the little ones? And it's like, well, no one reads about the little ones online unless there's a hook into it. Which then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, too. I mean, I can only speak for what we do on this podcast, Mm -hmm. which has a much smaller audience than even a beleaguered newspaper has. But whatever. Uh, We have some audience. I mean, look, I'm proud of what we do here, which is we do do an episode on fucking Robin Williams or fucking Nicolas Cage. Yeah, we get the people in. We throw you people some meat. Yes. And then you enjoy that. And then hopefully, hopefully you'll stick around for the episode episode about Matt Farley. Or, you know, maybe if you live in Toronto, you check out something like What the Film Festival, which is definitely trying to raise uh, the profile of underappreciated film. I'll just say, I think it's so awesome that 
in part thanks to this podcast there are people who will just buy whatever gold ninja video puts out and i appreciate it every time i think that rules like the the fact the fact that we've had some power to get people to watch bella lugosi meets a brooklyn gorilla (laughs) i mean i was gonna say incredible i I appreciate the power of someone uh buying dinosaurs in a mining facility yeah or or yeah or local legends or Mm -hmm. one of the good ones killer queen uh a a shot on super 8 film we can get through gold ninja video that i appreciate because a lot of those films maybe they played only a handful of film festivals they have no letterbox reviews or stuff like that so i appreciate that the letter writer has one big final question are either of you optimistic about the future of cinema cautiously optimistic because there are many more ways of making images and Mm. there are many more different kinds of people making images i'm not necessarily optimistic about the future of movie theaters at Mm. least in the form they are in right now although i believe there will always be some kind of public exhibition i agree with that and while there is more ways to do content oftentimes if your content is wild enough it will find some kind of audience maybe not one big enough to support uh you to do a living which is really unfortunate but it usually does find some kind of audience out there if the work can speak for itself i don't know if we're going to get a lot more like apocalypse nows in the future i don't see like Mm. i don't i frankly don't see room for a lot of like those like grand i mean maybe maybe i could be wrong but like art films on a huge scale you know you know what i'm talking about it's Mm. like what what who's paying for that kind of thing right now where's the market for that kind of thing what what we netflix amazon prime i guess the irishman we had the irishman you like films by aging auteurs like that that's the only thing it's the aging auteurs yeah spike lee can get a budget well you have to remember as well is that when apocalypse now was made uh francis ford was coming off of the godfather which was a big commercial hit so it was kind of like his carte blanche after that that's true i just don't see a lot of avenues for stuff like that being made i mean there are a lot of great films being made that are micro budget stuff Mm -hmm. or low budget stuff yeah maybe people just get uh normalized to seeing micro budget stuff instead of expecting a level of slickness on screen but ah good for you (laughs) No, yeah, yeah. sweet. <laughs> Let that money roll in. Get myself a solid gold rocket car <laughs> and perhaps uh, enough room to do the stuff as we sit surrounded by boxes and film prints. We're in Justin's home here. Just, just, I'm, I'm drowning under a pile of copies of Unlucky Stars by, <laughs> by Golden Edge of Video. No, you're not. You're mostly just surrounded by economy colored poly bubble mailers that are stacked to the ceiling right now. It's true. So, speaking of Golden Ninja Video, Finally happened, Will. That film print got scanned. Oh, man. And we have our first one. It is a Taiwanese film called Thrilling Bloody Sword, which up to now has only been available on a washed out VHS transfer that was copied off television. So there's like a watermark in the corner. But Will has seen the print that has been scanned. And what do you have to say about it, Will? It's beautiful. The colors are incredible. It's also got a nice grindhouse texture to it. You're going to like that. But yeah, it's spectacular. It reveals such beautiful beauty and the practical effects and the lighting and the costumes. The great thing about Taiwanese genre movies is they're like Hong Kong genre movies, but a little cheaper, a little dirtier, a little wilder. This one is particularly odd, and I can't really think of any direct analog, even out of Taiwan, where it has like painted backdrops that almost look like uh, expressionist Wizard of Oz style. It's also a retelling of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> like, it's wild. It's got crazy slapstick. I showed a sequence to Will where it's basically them doing Three Stooges routines. <laughs> Just so much is in this movie. I can't wait to see the whole thing. And I have to say, like, if I hadn't probably got this print and scanned it, it would have been just lost forever. So oh, 
I shudder to think. Yep. My God. But you can finally pick up a copy. It's up for pre-order right now. GoldenNinjaVideo.com. It's limited to 800 copies. And it's going to be commentaries and video featurettes. Me and Will are going to do one, of course. We gotta. And I'm very excited. And the more I sell, the more I'll be able to do this kind of stuff. So if you are maybe a Golden Ninja Video novice, you never got one. This is a great one to start. So... Please pick it up at goldninjavideo.com. Thrilling bloody sword. Do you want to say the Western we're going to do at some point? Okay, you mean the one that I currently have sitting on my floor? Okay, Let's talk it. Because okay. the only people that are going to get excited are the people who know what we're talking about. So <laughs> okay. what, what what Western do I have ready to scan, Will? It's called King of the Bullwhip. Yep. It stars <laughs> Lash LaRue, famous for uh, his whip-based things. It co-stars... Tom Neal of Detour fame, but what is it really famous for? So you may be saying King of the Bullwhip. I remember that title. Where have I heard that title? Well, you heard it in our episode about Ron Ormond. That's right. Ron Ormond was the exploitation filmmaker, made all sorts of wild movies like Mesa of Lost Women, Mm -hmm. you know, crazy stuff. Then he survived a plane crash and became a born again Christian. And he made such films as If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? fire and brimstone cinema oh man what a great disc because we can talk about poverty row westerns and ron ormond and oh, you know the guy who wrote king of the bullwhip is the guy who wrote that uh, black hat, hat white hat uh, book oh, about man. poverty row which is like the greatest book about poverty row ever written. so anyway that's not for a few more months no but, no but we the just... 35 and it's actually going to vinegar i opened it up I'm like ugh, so it's like melting so it needs to be scanned scan immediate. it right now because <laughs> we need to save the 30 there's no way there's other 35 millimeter prints of king of the bullwhip sitting around and Christ almighty. Okay. Okay. So uh, that's coming in your near future. But before then, I actually have a martial arts film I'm going to scan because I want to get out there as well. So, so much to look forward to in the future uh, from Gold Ninja Video, goldninjavideo.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Oh, yeah. So we returned to the... (laughs) I'm I'm ashamed (laughs) to tell you people this, but you'll like it. Come on. I know you people. Uh, We returned to the Kevin Smith well. And... Will is the one who brought up, he's like, I pulled out that uh, Jersey Girl DVD and I watched that interview with Kevin Smith and Ben Affleck. Funny stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, well, Will, you know what that means? We're doing a Jersey Girl episode. I was at Goodwill recently, just Mm -hmm. looking at the DVDs. Yep. And I saw Jersey Girl. Shocked you didn't own it already. (laughs) Yeah. I saw Jersey Girl. I was like, I really would like to watch that interview again. I remember. Great interview. You know, for two bucks. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the interview is very funny. Yeah. Did we like the movie though? <laughs> yeah. Did we rediscover it? Well, I think there's a bit of a split decision, actually. I mean, it's not well, that strong. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> so you'll have to listen to the episode. Yeah, we both loved it. I uh, feel like we agreed on everything, yes. basically. <laughs> um, at Patreon.com/slash/TheImportantCineClub, you can listen to that episode and tons more as well. Our entire back catalog for only five dollars a month. What are we doing next week? Will we are going to class up the joint next week? We are going to be talking about. Max of Fools. Yeah, so basically what's going to happen is we have one more week before Shocktober. So we have to class it up before we went We were into... like, we've been doing a lot of trash lately and we're going to do a lot of trash in October too. So let's get some art. I pitched Will a topic very crazy that no one has done a, an episode of a podcast oh, on. Okay, I'm going to tell them what you pitched no, me. No, don't pitch. No, we got to save it. We got to okay, save it when it comes okay. up. Yes. No one will get excited about it. Did that guy do a Christmas movie? Because if he did, we can make it the Christmas episode. No, unfortunately he did no, not. Okay. I believe he only did three films i think that he directed i think we're gonna be like what is it what is it yeah, i can figure it yes, out yes i i yes he did do i three can films. name all three so of them can I. <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to make a joke but if i do people will instantly know what it is so i won't but we'll say that in the future instead we're doing max ophels we're gonna do letter to an unknown woman la rue 
and I believe the reckless moment, which was his Hollywood picture. The king of the tracking shot. Are you familiar with his work? I've seen letters from an unknown woman. I think I might have seen a couple other ones, but I, I, he's, I by no means an expert. So I'm looking forward. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We interrupt this program briefly to thank some of our new patrons, who include Ben, David Telfer, Phil Brown, Louis Waters, Sam Rakowski, Michael Davies, Patrick Carroll, Lucas Barwenzwick, Show Date, Galen Wilson, Carl Fritz, Elliot Jones, and Caleb Clements. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. And if you haven't yet, please write us a review on Apple Podcast. It is very much appreciated, and it helps to get the show out there. And if people are looking for like a horror movie type game that they want to play over this Halloween season, I would recommend checking out my Twitter at J because I made another super spooky movie challenge with 31 prompts to really challenge you in the kind of movies that you would usually watch during this very scary season. So check it out at J. It should be pinned at the top of my profile. And with that, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, it's a big holiday that recently happened. The new Clint film came to cinemas. That's right. Cry Macho. It's, it's, we're fortunate that the letter writer brought up Clint because we have a brand new Clint. I can further correct the record with regards to our imperfect treatment of Clint. <laughs> and so how does Cry Macho stack up? Well, this one definitely felt like a 91-year-old man made it. Mm. And I say that with affection. I mean... I think this movie has flaws, but I like the flaws. Oh, so are you like an auterist um, defender I, now? I'm, You're like, I'm Clint Pilled, you could say. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I got to find the good in it. So it's weird because it seems similar to The Mule, the plot. Well, there's a big difference because in The Mule, he just played an old man, you yes. know? He played an old man, and it was very unlikely that he got caught up in this predicament. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, he's still supposed to be kind of cool. Okay. And Is that's, he cool? that's the problem because he looks very old question has he been irish manned in the face i don't know i think he might have a little botox okay so but other than that the, he looks just old clint eastwood he's so gaunt and he speaks with much greater difficulty than i think he used to he definitely looks very frail he's he doesn't tw- look like jimmy stewart like he says in the mule <laughs> he's 20 years too old for the role there's a whole plot of like you know maybe he's gonna move to this small town in mexico and uh live with this family and it's <laughs> like, like you're gonna be dead you're gonna die year. yeah <laughs> you don't need to worry about that and it's like there's the scene that's in all the commercials all the trailers where he punches someone and uh it's very like, uh ineffectively it looks like and I, I feel like this is why the movie has flopped because people, that punch well yeah people are able to accept a 91 year old movie star if he's playing a 91 year old guy but if he's playing a guy who's supposed to be cool then people have trouble with but it. speaking of a movie that is cool that's come out from an older filmmaker we have the card counter that came out as well the paul oh, schrader picture loved it so good i remember when it was coming out i was a little bit tentative which i was like you know paul schrader's talked about it himself where he's like you know you work so hard on the movies you only make a couple of good ones and the last few he's made have been really good so I was like, mm, was the, la- the last one he made. Was uh, really first good. Reformed. Yeah. Didn't he have one before that that I really liked? You didn't like Doggy Dog. No, absolutely not. You didn't not. like The Dying of the Light. You <laughs> no. certainly didn't like The Canyons. <laughs> no, eh, I can appreciate The Canyons, but yeah, I don't have yeah, yeah. the obsession that you have of rewatching it over <laughs> and over. I could have sworn there was another one, but maybe not. Maybe we're just thinking of watching all those Paul Schrader movies for the episode we did. With well, we them. watched some good ones for mm. that. Yeah. It seems like he found his niche because... 
in the card counter, he does a variation on what he does in First Reform. It feels like the sequel to First Reform. Yeah. It's like First Reform 2, but about another big yeah. global issue. But there's enough different stuff to make it really interesting. And man, he found some performers who just get on that Paul Schrader mm. vibe and know exactly what to do. Oscar Isaac is fantastic. Oh, you know? so good. He's so good at that, you know, stone-faced Paul Schrader thing while also having like emotion boiling beneath the surface. Mm. Tiffany Haddish, I think, is quite good. Yep. Uh, I, I think the chemistry could be a bit better between them, but, but yeah. I think they're both good on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ty Sheridan's okay. Yeah, Ty Whatever. Sheridan, he does what he needs to do. But I love the look of the film. Shitty. Yeah, shitty. No, not shitty in the sense of, like, badly filmed, like the Canyons. Yeah. <laughs> Although, the Canyons... Yeah, are... yeah, it represents the world that is showing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> um, but this movie, like, it's a shitty-looking world of, like, what actual gambling is, which is awful. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can imagine that. Well, I was going to say you could imagine the Martin Scorsese film about this, but he's made it. It's, it's called, called Casino. Casino. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like if Martin Scorsese made, made a movie about gambling, it would be about the hit. It would be about the adrenaline rush. But that's not what Paul Schrader is interested in. Schrader is interested in like the the deadening. He, he, want, he likes the poker face. Well, that's what Oscar Isaacs gets out of this kind of repetition mm-hmm. it's giving him structure in his life that if people don't know what the movie's actually about it's um oscar isaac's character was a soldier who worked at do they say guantanamo it, it, Bay? i believe it was abu Ghraib. Uh, abu Ghraib, because he was in the photos yes that's right and that he's looking card counting playing these games going through these systems which the film describes in great detail which i'm like i have no idea what this means but i love it when they're explaining it to me <laughs> yeah i love how shitty all the gambling places look mm-hmm. how like when pathetic all the players when, when are. there's the big tournament at yeah. the end and you would think well here we're gonna see some spectacle nope just a shitty ballroom, like hotel conference room with a lot of shitty looking people at various tables. And there's, you know, these characters who keep coming back and forth, like the America guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or how like the structure that they give each other is by giving nicknames to all of them as they go. And it's like a circuit. You feel it's very lived in. It feels like a real world. And of course, Oscar Isaac's character writes in a journal as he like drinks whiskey. I love Great that stuff. stuff. And I love the affectless digital cinematography photography the same with first reformed Mm -hmm. where like i remember seeing first reformed and thinking you know i love this but but it looks so it looks so cold and digital but i mean i mean that's the world that he's presenting though exactly and he sees he sees something of that bresson style in this you know very pared down and and unpretty wait when you say he sees you mean he literally copies well hey if you want another swing at that pickpocket ending (laughs) is this his fourth one yeah it's his fourth one oh my god but what I mean, Fourth it, time's the charm. what I mean is he sees some of that, like, uh, yeah. no, no beautiful images, but necessary images mm-hmm, quality mm-hmm. in, in the stripped down, not very pretty digital. When look. I was watching it, I was like, ah, can't, I don't want this movie to end. I'm yeah. just enjoying, there's a shot where they go through the prison and it's whatever camera they use, it like bends the image. It's like yeah. so good. Oh yeah. The way that it's presented. It's like, ah, oh, Paul Schrader, you still got it. It's hypnotic. Isn't it is. It? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Paul Schrader, I hope he has another one in him because, man, he figured out what's good. And as long as they keep letting him to make these kind of pictures. Well, yeah, it's great because it felt like for 10 years before that, he kept being like trying to figure it out. Yeah, it's like, how do I work in this system? What if I made a Nicolas Cage direct-to-video movie? And can I can I conform that to my world? Or is will? it The Canyons, which is kind of like uh, like an ugly digital look working with the now people and Batman, Ellis. But nope. Basically, what his thing is, is what he loved right from the beginning when he yeah. started making movies and writing about movies. Yeah. So good on you, Paul Schrader. If people haven't seen The Card Counter, 
Highly recommend it.